Our, our base camp text for this two-part series is Ephesians 6.23. So if you would turn there, and that's page 979 in your pew Bible, if you don't, do not have one with you. The idea for this two-part series came from a book by Sinclair Ferguson called The Children of the Living God. And let me just read the relevant portion of this quotation as a reminder of what we considered last week. So he's, he's just talked about the, the parable of the prodigal son, or as some call it, the parable of the, of the two sons. And then Sinclair writes this, Jesus was underlining the fact that, despite assumptions to the contrary, the reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing in the world to dawn upon us. So I'm taking that as true generally, that even as Christians, the last thing to dawn upon us, and and often it has to re- redawn upon us over and over throughout the Christian life is the fact that the Father does indeed love us. And it's a struggle for us over and over and over again throughout the Christian life to have the same suspicion that the prodigal son had. So we carry with us, this is the nature of sanctification and battling within the Christian life, we carry with us the prodigal's Suspicion. And this is what this two-part series is addressing. The title of the series is Battling the Prodigal Suspicion, Resting in the Assurance of the Father's Love. So last week, we answered the question, Why So Suspicious?, which was addressing the main title of the series, Battling the Prodigal Suspicion, This morning, we're answering the question, why so assured, which is looking at the second part of the series title, resting in the assurance of the Father's love. And that's the question that we're answering this morning. Since uh, two, I think it was 2008, summer of 2008, my family has always vacationed at a friend's house who lives on the, along the ocean shore in Ponte Vedra, Florida. Trent's actually been to this house before, so he's visualizing it right now. And we've gone there every summer. We're going there again in July. We love it. About uh, six or seven years ago, my friend, whose house it is, decided to grab his ocean, one of his ocean kayaks. So ocean kayaks are amazing. They're wonderful. We pick it up, and because of where the, where the tide was at that particular time, it was about a 50-yard carry. An ocean kayak, weighed, this one weighs about 220 pounds. So I've got the back, he's got the front, we're carrying it. I'm, and as I'm carrying this thing, I'm saying, I'm going to feel really safe in this thing because it has substance, it has weight. So I'm walking up there into the ocean, very confident in this Really heavy, 220-pound kayak. So we get in it. The ocean's really smooth. There's no waves. And we go out. And we, we both played uh, college basketball. So we were both locked in 
in this competitive mindset. So he's in the front, I'm in the back, and we start paddling out. And we're just going straight out into the ocean. And we are, we are humming. We are humming. And I did not look back over my shoulder. I'm all business. I'm going straight out. I'm paddling. We're, you know, I'm trying to go as fast as he's going. And we're, 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 we're just we're flying out there. And I don't know how long it was. felt like a while. He says, all right, we need to turn around. I hadn't looked back yet. So here we are turning around this 220-pound kayak. And as I caught sight of what used to be the shore, my, my stomach dropped. And all I felt in that split second was, here's the best word I can come up with, panic. This kayak, which just a few minutes before felt like, man, this has got substance and weight. And suddenly I felt like I was out in the middle of the ocean and I had nothing under me. So we're sitting there. We're just, we're just sitting there resting, catching our breath. And all I can think of is let's get back to land. Let's get back to land because this is a mass. I saw miles. Oh, I could see miles and miles of shoreline, which is not a fun experience when you're out in a kayak. And as we're sitting there, resting, catching our breath, something hits the back of where I'm sitting, of the kayak, and along the entire 220-pound kayak. Scrape the whole thing. John, my friend, turned around, who lives at the ocean, turns around, and on his face... Here's the best word I can use to describe it. Panic. And he says, let's go. And we paddled so fast. Suddenly, in that moment, the ocean felt completely unsafe. Because I knew nothing about what was under there. There was so much of the ocean that was completely unseen. And one, one minute I felt safe, the very next I did not. God can feel like that. There's, there's more to know about God than we can possibly know about him as finite creatures. There's more to know about God than we can possibly know about God as finite creatures And the devil knows this, and he works to exploit that. But though we cannot know God fully, most of God cannot be known by us. Though we cannot know God fully, we can know God truly. Ephesians gives us the most wonderful truly that can be known. And Ephesians gives it to us to assure us, even when there is much unknown. Ephesians shows us what is in the depths of God and what it shows us that we can know truly, 
is what assures us when the devil seeks to exploit that which we do not know. So our governing text, our base camp, is Ephesians 6.23. And this is Paul's benediction, which closes out the epistle. And he says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So what I argued for last week is that verse 23 and verse 24 show us the structure of what Paul is doing in this epistle and helps us understand what is actually going on in the epistle. What is the main thing that Paul wants to communicate with us? In a world where there are cosmic powers that are working against us and seeking to exploit what we do not know about God, what we do not know about the world, what we do not know about our circumstances, what we do not know about what's going on in our heart, and that which is in our heart which causes us to fear, what does God do to deal with that particular problem. And that's what this benediction is doing. It's, it's rehearsing the theological content of the epistle. And at the same time, it's a benediction in that this is God speaking over his people. This is actually what I'm going to do for you. This is not an epistle that you go into and you leave and then you revisit, but it's actually an epistle that you go into that God then works upon his people. So you have two words, peace and love. Both of those are from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So peace has to do with being right with God as judge. Love has to do with being known by God as Father. Peace has to do with being right with God as judge. Love has to do with being known by God as Father. I picked up this morning my almost 30-year-old copy of J.I. Packer's Knowing God because one sentence came to mind. Here it is. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved by and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. So peace, peace with God, knowing that God is not against us, is a great thing. And that's why Paul addresses that, particularly in chapter 2. That Jesus Christ himself is our peace. He is our very access to God. But to be loved by God, the Father, is a greater thing. Still. So Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians with this benediction in order to punctuate the assurance that we have of the Father's love. And so this morning, we will answer the question, why so assured? And we'll answer it under two headings. First heading, two accounts of love. And then the second, one movement of love. Two accounts of love. Two accounts of love. So I'm thinking here of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, which we spent a little more time in last week. And then also what I prayed in my opening prayer 
Paul's second prayer in the letter to of Ephesians in chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. So let's, let's look first at Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, where the focus is on the Father's love. So the Father's love is not mentioned, it's described. So even though it doesn't say the Father loves us, blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who loves us, it's not how it works. So Paul doesn't state explicitly that the Father's lo- Father loves us. What he does is he describes the Father's love. So the focus here in the opening section of Ephesians is on the Father's love. Let's look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every, here's his generosity, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now he begins to describe how it is that God has blessed us Even as he chose us, so this is a choosing of love, even as he chose us in him, our Lord Jesus Christ, from verse 3, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, before him being the Father. So look at that phrase, before the foundation of the world. The, The word for before there, I think, I think, is better translated above. So above the foundation of the world, God chose us. God chose us in Christ above the foundation of the world. So we've got so much theology here. But the depth of theology that we have right here is meant not to be something that we debate It's actually meant to be something that assures us. So what does Paul mean by above the foundation of the world? Foundation of the world is referring to when when the world itself, when the universe, when the cosmos itself was created. So what Paul's doing here is he's, he's, he's indicating that the Father stands above creation. He stands outside of creation. He is not a part of it. He is not contained within it. Rather, he is so sovereign, so immense, so infinite that he actually exists above it, outside of it. So sometimes we like to refer to eternity past. Technically, there's no such thing as eternity past. There's just Eternity. Because when we use the language eternity past, we start to think in terms of what? A succession of moments before anything was created. But when we're talking about God being outside of time, above time, we're talking about a God in whom there is no succession of moments. There's just one eternal act. And not only is there no succession of moments, there's no succession of knowledge in God. He he doesn't increase in knowledge. He has all knowledge so that there's one singular knowing. So this, this, this is the theology that's underneath the text. 
What does that mean? What does that mean? What, what good does that matter for us? In, in volume seven of the works of Thomas Goodwin, Thomas Goodwin draws out that implication. Listen to this. And this is what Paul's getting at. Listen to this. God has been your ancient friend, even from everlasting. He hath loved thee ever since. Here it is, here it is. All right, ready? He hath loved thee ever since he loved himself. There is no, there is no succession of moments and there is no succession of knowledge in God. And so Thomas Goodwin's looking at this and he's going, do you want to know how long the father has loved you? Children of God, ever since he has loved himself. If the Father has loved you like this, I'm going to use a double negative now. If the Father has loved you like this, he can't not love you. In God, he does not separate the knowing of himself the loving of himself from the loving of you. Because in God, there is but one single act. So the stress here upon the Father's love is really breathtaking. If, if the Father has loved us, his people like this, he can't not love us. So when Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, there's no surer foundation than the God who chose us above the foundation, the creation of the world. So opening chapter focuses on Father's love, then go to chapter 3, verse 14, where we have the shift where the focus is on Christ's love. So Paul prays, he says, this is what he prays, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, so the prayers are to the Father, what does he pray? To the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, whose glory? Look at the text, his glory, who's the his? It's the Father, according to the riches of the Father's glory, He, the Father, may grant you to be strengthened. Remember the strength, the power language from chapter 6, verse 10 to 18? That, he may, that we may be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that, here's the purpose, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know 
the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So let's look at the text. So he prays that we might know that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith for this purpose, that we may have strength. We need strength. So in an uncertain world and in so much that we cannot know about God, we need strength when we have the devil exploiting our lack of knowledge, our finite knowledge. What we need is strength to do what? To, look at the text, to comprehend with all the saints, not limited to a select few of the saints. This is to be enjoyed by all the saints, to comprehend with all the strengths, saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Whatever that is, it's bigger than the ocean. And then he has this, the second part, to comprehend, then verse 19, to know. So here's what's happening here. He's elaborating on what the breadth and length and height and depth is. Because we read that and we go, okay, what's he talking about here? So he elaborates on that. He gives commentary with the second part to know what? The, the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. There's, there's more breadth and length and height and depth in the love of Christ than we can possibly comprehend, and yet Paul, Paul prays that we would receive strength to comprehend it. Even in the midst of an uncertain world. So whenever the unknown of God causes us to fear, the knowing of the love of Christ calms those fears. The love of Christ is to be bigger to us than all the unknowable. It is possible, it is possible, and it is intended that we experience more of the love of Christ than any of the unknowable can possibly cause us to fear. So here, here's my question. All right, so we looked at emphasis on the Father's love, emphasis on Christ's love. Here's the question. What happened to the Father's love? What happened to it? Paul, come on, I was really enjoying all this talk about how the Father loves us. Why this switch to the love of Christ? Where did, that, where did the love of the Father go? So let me answer that question with another question. You love it when kids, you love it when your parents do that? You ask a question and they answer that question with a question themselves? I'm going to do that. Is, is, here it is. Is the love of the Son a separate love from the love of the Father? So, with that. Is the love of Christ a, and I'm using this word very, very carefully, intentionally, is the love of Christ a separate 
love from the love of the Father? And the answer is no. So let's, let's let me explain the answer. How, do I, how did I come to that answer? Look at Ephesians 1 again. So we're back to Ephesians 1, verses 6 and 7. So verse 4, he says, the Father chose us. Verse 5, he says, the Father predestined us. And then he says that the Father did this, chose, predestined, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which, so that grace, with which he blessed us, and then notice the next phrase, in the beloved. Who's that? That's the Son. So he, the Father has loved us, where? He's chosen us, he's predestined us. Where did that happen? In the beloved. In other words, in the Son that he loves. That's where he chose us. That's where he predestined us. That's where the love of the Father resides. Where? In the beloved. And then notice the next two words. ESV says, in him. It's better to say, translate it, in whom. So the whom there is the beloved. In whom. So the Father's chosen us. He's predestined us in the beloved. In whom, in this beloved where all the Father's love resides, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And that's where it explodes into human history. In him we have redemption. So we can say this, the Father and the Son's love are distinct, but they are the same love. The Father... The Father's love, you can put it this way, just a way to understand it. The Father's love plans. The Son's love performs. The Spirit's love, last part of Ephesians 1, the opening paragraph, the Spirit's love applies. So the Father's love plans. The Son's love performs. And the Spirit's love applies. But... It's one and the same love. So theologians call this, use a big term here, just because theology helps us capture what's going on here. It's, it's called inseparable operations. God is indivisible in his essence, which means that what he does what the Father does in His planning, what the Son does in His performing, what the Spirit does in His applying, what the, what the Father planned and what the, what the Son performed, what the Spirit does in His applying is one indivisible act. So when we talk about the love of the Father, the love of the Son, or we talk about Romans 5, that the Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts, it's one singular love. It's not three different loves. It's not two different loves. It's one love appropriated by the Father in one way, appropriated by the Son in another way, and appropriated by the Spirit in another way. So what is the love of Christ then that surpasses knowledge that Paul wants us to have strength to experience? 
It is the, uh, the love of the Father unleashed in the world. To know the love of Christ is to know the love of the Father. That's how you know the love of the Father. That's how the love of the Father is revealed. You cannot know the love of the Father apart from its revelation in Jesus Christ himself, the beloved Son. T.F. Torrance was uh, born in the late 1800s and then ended up uh, getting theological training. He's a Scottish theologian. He served as a, a chaplain in World War II. And here he is out on the battlefield, and this young teenage soldier was 17, 18, was dying. And he knew he was dying. He's on his back, bleeding out, and he's looking into T.F. Torrance's eyes. And he asks this question. Is there another God behind the back of Jesus? His understanding was the God of the Old Testament is wrath, wrath, wrath. Jesus is different. So I'm about to die here. Is there another God behind the back of Jesus that I need to be concerned about? That's his question. And T.F. Torrance says, there is no other God behind the back of Jesus. To see Jesus, to know Jesus, is to know the Father. To be loved, to be loved by Jesus is to be loved by the Father. To die in the love of Jesus is to die in the love of the Father. So those are the two accounts of love, which are actually one account. Second heading, one movement of love. One movement of love. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Two, two massive little words. So you have, verse 5, the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You see the two words, to himself? See that? The Father predestined us for adoption as sons. The phrase adoption as sons is actually one word in the Greek text, and they put two other words in the middle of it. So I'm going to read it. The Father predestined us for adoption as sons to himself. To himself. So I've got a, a 22 and uh, a 20-year-old and 18-year-old son, sons. And um, when we adopted them, so Isaiah was born in Louisville, is that how you say it? I can never say it right. Isaiah was born in Louisville. And Noah was, was born in Florence, South Carolina. So when we, drove, when we drove to Louisville to get Isaiah, and when we drove to Florence to get Noah, you know what was in my heart? Man, it was, there was nothing but love in my heart. What I wanted to do in both cases is to bring that son 
to myself to get that son in my arms. And not just in my arms, but to bring those sons home. My intention in driving to Louisville, my intention in driving to Florence was to bring my sons to myself. What's what's different about the father bringing us to himself than me bringing my sons to myself? What's different? Remember, even as he chose us in him, verse 4, above the foundation of the world. So with me, there was a before decision and an after decision. And there was no loving them in someone else who is one with me. Not so with the Father. So as Thomas Goodwin said, God hath been your ancient friend even from everlasting. He hath loved thee ever since he hath loved himself. I do not love like that. I can't. It's impossible. I'm finite. But not so the Father. So when he brings us to himself, there is so much assurance and confidence and joy and love to be known and experienced because he is doing something that none of us can ever do. This means that the Father is so attentive to us. You know how attentive the Father is to you. Jesus in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And now he says, okay, this one who who can throw both body and soul in hell? Know this about him. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Yeah, I hear that and I go, okay, that's, that's, really, that's really wonderful. But I ain't no bird. So help me, help me, Jesus, please, make this, make this relevant for me. I'm not a, not a bird. So Jesus goes on. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. By whom? By the Father. Fear not, therefore. Question. Have you ever, ever had the hairs on your head numbered? Mine changes every day, so it's impossible anyway. Have you ever had the hairs of your head numbered? Answer, not a one of you. Significance, the Father, the Father is more attentive to you than you are to yourself. He's more attentive to you than you are to yourself, and it's not even close. One of the things that Ephesians does is it it actually shows us how the Father brings us to himself. 
in this very attentive, loving, comprehensive way. So Paul's first prayer to the Ephesians, verse 15, 15 to 20, verse 19, he says, he prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of the Father's power toward us. So this attentive Father who has loved us ever since he has loved himself, this Father wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power that is toward us who believe, this power that is according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You know what Paul is saying there with that language? The Father brought Christ out of the grave to himself, seating him at his right hand. You cannot get closer to the Father in a more honored position than to be at the Father's right hand. So what God the Father did was bring Christ to himself after Christ suffered after Christ obeyed even to death and death on the cross, the Father brought him to himself. This is what Christ deserved. Christ deserved this. So the focus is on the Father bringing Christ to himself powerfully. But here's the concern that someone might, might, might hear that and we may share this concern. But that's Christ, not us. Yeah, wonder, he deserved it. Yes, amen. Glad that happened. But that's not us. What about us? Legit question? I think so, because Paul answers it. He answers the question, so it's legit. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 4. So after describing us in our lost condition apart from grace. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So here's the love of the Father, the great love with which he loved us being poured out upon us within history. Even, verse 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together With, see it? With Christ. By grace you have been saved. In other words, Christ deserved it. You didn't, but guess what? Here you are. He made you alive together with Christ. Verse 6. And, here's what that looks like. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the, the raised and seated is a repetition of what was in Paul's prayer. This time the focus is on us. What's, it, what's the raising of Christ and the seating Christ at the Father's right hand have to do with us? The word with 
is actually in the verb here, raised. It's part of it. It's one word. The word with is also with the word seated. It's one word. Raised with. Seated with. It's one action. When Christ was raised, when Christ was seated, you were raised and seated with him. A singular movement. So the, the movement to raise Christ from the grave and the movement to seat Christ at his right hand is the same movement that happens when we believe. We are raised with Christ and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. In verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages. Tomorrow, uh, my son Noah and I fly to Seattle for his uh, senior gift. We're going to spend time in the Olympic National Forest. We're going to go to Mount Rainier. I told him, I've told him that uh, he, he's already lived on the East Coast, never been away from the East Coast. I told him he's not seen a mountain yet. Paris Mountain? <laughs> he's seen that. And he's seen others. We're, we're going to go to Mount Rainier. All 14,411 feet. And look at it. And all that we're going to be able to do as we stand there in awe of the size of this singular mountain all by itself, all we're going to be able to do is imagine what it would be like to be at the summit of it. All we can do is imagine. I don't have the skill to actually summit it. Skill, nor the equipment, nor the desire. Amen, yes. All that he and I will do is imagine standing on the summit of Mount Rainier. You know what Paul tells us about the summit of being seated at the right hand of Christ? You don't have to imagine it. You're there. You're there. So in Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, the focus is on the Father bringing us to himself with Christ. So back in Ephesians 1, 5, when he says the Father has predestined us for adoption as sons to himself, he adds these three words, through Jesus Christ. How did he do that? Ephesians 2, he made us alive together with Christ. He deserved it. You did not deserve it. But the Father has loved you with his love in the beloved in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. 
He's raised us up with him. He's seated us with him. So, how, you hear that, you hear that, and you go, how do you actually grow in such a way that that word is actually my assurance experientially? How does, how does hearing that, reflecting upon that, actually cause me to grow in my assurance because of it? That's what we want to know. So Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You remember the benediction? Peace to the brothers, peace be to the brothers, and love, next two words, with faith. Love that comes along with faith. So, Paul in Romans 10, 17 tells us how that happens. Faith, this kind of faith that has love, the love of the Father coming with it and the experience of the love of the Father and the love of Christ coming with it, this kind of love comes from hearing. And hearing comes from the word of Christ. In John 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, about the new birth, Nicodemus not understanding it. Jesus says, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So he's highlighting what took place in Numbers 21 when the fiery serpents had, were, had killed a lot of the Israelites and there, others had been bit and were dying. And God tells Moses to raise up this fiery serpent and when the people look at it, they'll be what? We healed. So look. You're dying, you look, you're healed. So Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So here's, here's how it happens. How do you grow in your assurance? By doing what we just did. The proclamation that the Father has raised you up with Christ, that the Father has seated you with Christ, the proclamation of what the Father has done for you is what gives you the assurance. Look to the Word, look to Christ as He's presented to you. Father has loved us so well. And the unknowable of God and the unknowable of the cosmos and 
the devil's schemes against us and the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces, evil spiritual forces of this present darkness cannot withstand the strength that can be found in hearing and understanding and feeling what it is to be loved by this Christ who has been proclaimed to you. Which is why Paul ends with the benediction that he does. That what Ephesians says is what God promises to do. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't we want to love this Christ? With love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word. We have heard what your word says about Christ, what it says about us in Christ, what it says about your love for us in Christ. And so we pray that your spirit would apply that which we have heard so that we would believe and we would find assurance. So in this week to come, we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And whatever sin we see within, which would cause us to fear, may we see a Christ who has done all for us. That it's all of grace. That he deserved it, we did not. But because you of your great love with which you have loved us, you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And for this we give you thanks and ask that you would do that which you have said. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.